So, thank you, Elizabeth. Um, and as Elizabeth has said, we're finishing um, in the first epistle of John um, this morning. We will um, have just a few weeks before Advent, and we usually run a series during Advent and up to Christmas. Um, so, um, we'll fill those weeks in the way that I love to do with um, a few psalms. So we'll be looking at a few psalms for um, the three, and f- three or four weeks um, in between finishing um, the Epistle of John and um, going on into Advent. So we're in 1 John and chapter 5 and verses 13 um, to 21. Question, Um, do any of us ever have doubts about our beliefs or about the reality of God and about the unseen world? Do we? And really the question is not just for um, Christian believers, Jesus followers. Um, I, I once heard um, a golfing mate and um, boasting about his atheism to, to a, a group of guys. And um, at the time, I was doing a course, and we were asked to um, put a couple of questions to um, an atheist friend if we had the opportunity. So I rang him up and told him. And said, um, would, he, would he help me to, to fulfil my assignment? And, and we'd meet over a coffee and, and I wanted to question him about his um, atheism that I'd heard him speaking about or overheard him speaking about. And he agreed. Um, so we met up over a coffee. And before I said anything to him, he, he said to me, he admitted to me that he hadn't really given serious thought to his position at all. And he wasn't really sure that he was an atheist. <laughs> I think he was a bit worried about what was to follow. Well, I, I didn't really say anything to him. I just questioned him. And we had a really interesting time. But it, it showed how uncertain he was about um, actually what he believed. He had many doubts. And it's great to ask an atheist how, how, um, how, how, how good an atheist are you. Do you ever have any doubts? I love doing that. It's a great thing to do. I really do do that quite a lot. Doubts gnaw away, and where we're concerned as Jesus followers, um, they can seriously interfere with our desire and our ability to live as true Jesus followers. Maybe doubts are the most serious Thing that gets between us and really living lives for Jesus um, that are, are, are full of him. Um, John tells us that we can know, we can know. And here are, um, here's a sort of summary of the um, last two, not the last verse, verses Um, of this section Um, and I think they're going to go up 
they were up at the beginning. That was really lovely. Thanks for putting them up at the beginning. I really loved it. They really spoke to me as I looked at them. Here we are. We know. We know that we are children of God. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. I'm going to do what I did last time because I want to hear John's voice. I want us all to hear John's voice um, over this. Um, I don't want you to hear my voice. I want you to hear my. I want to hear. I want you to hear John's voice, and I want to be faithful to what I believe John is saying in this section of scripture. So I'm going to read it, and then um, I'm going to. I'm going to go through it. Um, so verse thirteen of 1 John chapter 5. John says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know That he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have what we asked of him. If you see any brother or sister commit a sin that does not lead to death, you should pray and God will give them life. I refer to those whose sin does not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I'm not saying that you should pray about that. All wrongdoing is sin. And there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that anyone born of God does not continue to sin. The one who was born of God keeps them safe. And the evil one cannot harm them. We know that we are children of God. And that the whole world is under the control of the evil one. We know also that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true by being in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, um, I, you'd be forgiven if you thought that was rather a disconnected collection of things that John is saying at the close of his letter. But I think they are connected. I think they're very much connected. And, and perhaps um, the way in which I um, it sort of interpret them to you will show you how very connected they are. So the first verse is, it'd be great if um, verse 13 um, can be put up 
Um, and um, verse 15, 13 to 15. And you can look at those words um, while I just um, give a, a, an interpretation of how I understand what John is wanting to say to us. Above everything, above everything, John wants us to know that we have eternal life. And Tom Wright um, translates that, the life of the age to come. And he says it starts now. But it's the life of the age to come, which we can enter into now. Jesus um, calls it in the gospel, life in all its fullness. I love that. Life in all its fullness. Eternal life. John says this life comes to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, this is an outrageous statement for a Jewish person. And John was sort of leading the way in following Jesus and being a teacher who was introducing people to Jesus. And here he is calling him the Son of God and saying that eternal life and life in all its fullness comes to us who believe in the name of the Son of God. It's still a radical statement today. It's not religion. It's revelation. In the first century, you know, Christians were called atheists by the Romans because they denied the Roman gods and all other gods. And they were following somebody who the Romans viewed as a human being. So they were called atheists. But I'm telling you that everything that John says in his gospel, in his letters, and in Revelation, is about knowing God through Jesus, the Son of God. And he uses various descriptions of Jesus, the Son of God, the eternal word of God, the word that appeared in flesh, the Messiah, Jewish term, the Christ, Greek term, the light of the world, the way, the truth, the life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and more. And at the very heart of this is the cross. The way God chooses to solve the sin problem by sacrificing himself in his son. 
Jesus is not an add-on. Jesus is not an alternative, says John. Jesus is the way to the Father. Note the relationship in that. Jesus is not the way to God. He's the way to the Father. No religion knows God as Father apart from Christianity. The defining historic event of our faith is Christ crucified. This is the heart. This is the identity of Christian faith. And John bears witness to this. And he considers everything else to be idolatry. One of the greatest things about eternal life that John expresses in verse 14 is the intimacy, well he expresses it through um, talking about the relationship as father, but the intimacy of relationship with God that it brings us into. So eternal life, as John lays it out, brings us into an intimate relationship with God. We become God's children and God becomes father. And this means we can be so in tune with God himself as father through Jesus that we are able to bring him our requests in line with his will because we are in such intimate relationship with him. This becomes possible that we can bring him our requests in line with his will and we can know that he always, always hears us. In fact, John says, he already has answered us when we pray in line with his will. says your father knows what you want before you ask John learned that from Jesus didn't he and so verse 16 16 and 17 these are tricky verses aren't they so let me say to you it's quite clear to me that these tricky verses are not about whether you or I, or anyone else, has committed an unforgivable sin. They're not about that. They are about intercessory prayer. That is prayer for other people. It's about my prayer for other people. It's about your prayers for other people. And when you get caught up in a debate about what the unforgivable sin is and whether you've committed it, you're completely missing the point that John is making. John is telling us that if we are aware 
of a fellow believer drifting away or falling into sin, rather than judge them, rather than criticize them, rather than talk about them behind their back, we should pray for them to be restored. And he does make this strange reference to a sin which leads to death. And he uses the personal pronoun, I, which shows that he's sort of thinking about this. But he doesn't come clean about it. He doesn't say what it is, does he? So I don't understand why it is that some Jesus followers lose sleep or waste time over it. We don't even know what John is talking about here. But we can hear his challenge and we can ask ourselves, do we pray for fellow believers to be restored when we become aware that they have sinned? Or are we rather guilty of passing judgment, criticising them or just leaving them? Perhaps thinking of them as a lost cause. So these verses link with the previous verse about prayer. And if we are praying for for believers who have sinned and who are wandering, we're praying in line with God's will. He will hear us. Verses 18 to 19 can be a bit tricky too. Some people might justifiably think that John is saying that... um, Actually, if we're followers of Jesus, we never sin anymore. But the previous verses show that he doesn't mean that. So great to have those previous verses. No, this means that if God is our Father, we can't go on and on sinning. And that's further encouragement to pray for a fellow believer who's wandered away rather than write them off. And so, to John's final word, verse 20 to 21. The last sentence can seem a little bit like a sort of jolt. What's this about? Right at the end, dear children, keep yourselves from idols. It's John's first mention of idols in his letter and it comes in the last sentence. Why is he signing off with a statement about idolatry all of a sudden? Well, I think that John has been indirectly saying something very important about idolatry right through his letter. And I've already referred to it. When I spoke last on 1 John chapter 4, um, I specified idolatry. I, I said in speaking about God's love, that we can't love God because God himself is unknowable. 
Our sin blinds us to God. Our human ideas of God are mere constructions that reflect our views of what we think or want God to be like. And that's very dangerous because God isn't what I want him to be like or who I think he ought to be. And you so often hear people saying, well, if God does that, then I'm not going to believe in him. Well, that's utter nonsense. Not believing in somebody because they might be like something just just doesn't get rid of them. You know, if you've got a monster knocking at your door and you look out the window and you see a monster knocking at your door and you say, I don't like that, I'm not going to believe it. It doesn't alter the fact that a monster is knocking at your door. years ago Liz and I went to um, an exhibition at the British Museum they do fantastic exhibitions and it was an exhibition about um, about God and about human belief in God and about the massive um, percentage of people who actually do believe in God and all their views and we went round it included Christianity and we went round the exhibition it was just so interesting so fascinating but all of it was about Human construction of God. Human ideas about God. Even the Christian section. So actually, it wasn't about God at all. And it wasn't about people's belief in the God who John is writing about. Because it was all about constructions of the human mind. We can call that theism. And there are many leading theologians who say, as Jesus followers, that to be a Christian is to be an atheist still, just like the Romans accused Christians of. Because we cannot construct God in our own minds. That is idolatry. God becomes knowable because he reveals himself in human form and as a man he suffers the cruelest death to deal with sin and that John says is the way to know God through his extravagant love let's not try and find any other way of knowing God And it's wonderful how John has come to this through knowing Jesus, through living with Jesus, through hearing the teaching of Jesus, through seeing the ministry of Jesus, through being intimately involved with Jesus for three years, through seeing his death in absolute amazement. How could this man be crucified? He thought he was the Christ. And then witnessing the resurrection. Without the Son of God, John would say, God is beyond understanding. He is unknowable. That's how today's section started. The Son of God gives us understanding of the true God. It's through the Son of God that we know the truth about God. God is the truth and we are in the truth because we are in Jesus Christ. Anything else is idolatry. Want to know the true God? 
Want to know eternal life, life in all its fullness? Open your heart to the Son of God. This is how the true God chooses to reveal himself and to come to us. Guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from all other ideas of God. They are mere constructions of the human mind.